This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Clean Cut Barbershop, located on 21 East Kelsey Avenue in Salt Lake City, Utah. To schedule an appointment, visit cleancutbarbershopslc.com. Walk-ins are also welcome. Mention Short Story Bingo and receive $5 off your first visit. Now, on to the show! Ooh, that's a bingo! Is that the way you say it? That's a bingo? You just say bingo. Bingo! How fun! How fun indeed, ladies and gentlemen, it is. My name is Nate Chacon Third. If this is your first time... Welcome, if it's not, the retention program is working. Short Story Bingo, episode 49, and the place to be what we do on this podcast is I am a glorified narrator to stories you might not have already heard before uh, from authors um, unknown in some cases. Uh, It's like Audible, sort of. So I just want to um, say... Uh, for the last episode, the Easy E episode, um, yeah, man, I still don't believe, I can't believe that cat had nine kids, um, but that's only because I can't believe he had nine kids, not because like that he wasn't capable of having nine kids or whatever. I mean, Antoine Walker uh, in of the uh, in the NBA, that cat has, I think he has forty eight kids, and Sean Kemp has like another. 48 kids so it's not I just was taken aback about, about that a lot but also the whole story but um yeah it was a really good really good episode got a lot of good feedback for that one so thank you guys so much for listening I certainly appreciate it um on this episode we actually are going to read about um the true story behind the uh new movie that's coming out um that Mel Gip- uh, excuse me that Mel Gibson um, is starring and directing The Mule. Um, it's actually, a, you know, about a, a real guy. Um, and so we're going to be reading about him. It's a, a story um, that is very, very uh, intriguing based on his age um, and what he was accomplishing under the nose of um, you know, ATF, DEA, stuff like that. You know what I mean? Um, his name is, his real name is Leo Sharp. Um, this may have spoilers in it. This is from a New York times, um, uh, piece in uh, 2014 by Sam Dolnick. Uh, and I'll include the link in the description box. But, um, if you want to wait until you watch the movie to listen to this episode i certainly understand um but obviously the movie's not going to be the complete uh depiction of what uh you know leo sharp did but that's what we're doing today we're going to read about the actual mule um and so yeah let's get into what uh you know new countries have uh, uh you know um okay so top three um Okay, no surprise at the top. United States, uh, and then Pakistan. Okay, shout out my Paki, Pakistani people, uh, and then um, Spain coming in number three. So, uh, um, hola, that's what I got, man. Um, and then for uh, top states, top three states, 
we got Virginia coming in at number one. I'm sure it's because of my sister. Uh, number two, shout out to you, Angie. Uh, number two coming in is California. Woo woo. Number three is Illinois. So big shout outs, big shout outs. Um, on Podbean, they have been giving me the analytics for Canada as well. And uh, right now, I think it's mostly just my family out in uh, Alberta. But Alberta had um, the most downloads uh, for the uh, previous episodes. So yeah, shout out to Alberta, my family out there. Uh, you guys are you guys are wonderful. So sit back, enjoy. Thank you guys again so much for listening to the last episode. Uh, get that book, Original Gangsters by Ben Westhoff. W e s t h o f f. There's a description in there for it. But uh, yeah. Oh, and the um, random Twitter follower shout out goes out actually to Sam Dolnick. So at Sam Dolnick, he's an assistant managing editor over at the New York Times. So okay are you ready because i'm ready to read about the mule leo sharp episode 49 short story bingo Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Sometimes they're funny and sometimes they're sad. Most of the time they're funny because I hate to be sad. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. Short story bingo. But don't take my word for it. Spare fingers. Yes. The Lincoln pickup truck with Iowa plates was hurtling down Interstate 94, headed for Detroit. A dozen DEA officers and unmarked cars were scattered along a 70-mile stretch from Kalamazoo to Jackson, Michigan. From on-ramps and overpasses, they watched traffic flash by as they tried to spot the truck. I mean... Good thing it was a Lincoln truck and not like a fucking Ford F-150. They would have found that pretty quick. Well, or it would have been like a needle or wait. It would have been like a haystack, a hay, a piece of hay in a haystack because there's so many F-150s. I think that's the point I was. Okay. They believed it was carrying a major shipment of cocaine. Of cocaine. Um, Okay. So, Special Agent Jeff Moore, let's see, uh, cocaine. I can't feel my face. I mean, I can touch it, but I can't feel it inside. Special Agent Jeff Moore and his team in the Detroit, uh, the Detroit Field Division had spent months investigating a local branch of the Sinaloa Cartel, the most notorious and powerful drug trafficking ring, led by Joaquin Guzman, known as... Dun, 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 El fucking Chapo. Um, with a sprawling network of distributors, couriers, wholesalers, and street dealers, the organization had pumped thousands of kilos of cocaine from the Mexican border through Arizona safe houses and into Detroit. That's fucking remarkable to think about. To. And I, and I just stopped myself to, from even saying that because is it though? I mean, I feel like if there's a will, there's a way. And if there's someone that wants, I mean, if there's a demand, there's going to be a supply that somehow gets there. Um, wow, that's crazy. That's crazy. Detroit, Michigan, dude. 
Let, what's how far is Arizona? Just let's say Phoenix to Detroit. Any guesses? Any guesses? Let's see. I'll uh, go ahead and take a guess. Three, two, one, one thousand nine hundred and eighty-six miles. Okay, hey man, that's thirty hours, dude. That's a long time. Okay. Well, they were getting it there. They were getting it there. Okay. Um, it was by every measure the biggest cocaine operation Detroit authorities had ever seen. In previous years, a significant bus might be a dozen kilos. Okay. Um, now the cartel is bringing in... Oh, my God. You ready for this number? I don't know. Go ahead, guess. Out of A, B, or C, A being 500, B being 750, or C being uh, 200. Of those three, which one do you think it is? In previous years, a significant bus might be a dozen kilos. Now the cartel was bringing in, get your answer in, oh, surprisingly C, 200 kilos a month. <laughs> Moore's, col excuse me, Moore's colleagues had wiretapped 11 phones and had spent so many hours listening to the drug traffickers' coded Spanish conversations that they knew all the leadership ta uh, leadership's tactics. Um, the wholesaler called Juanito had a goofy, childlike giggle. <laughs> My name's Juanito. The courier called Tata. The courier called Tata was sometimes the butt of their jokes. The cartel exclusively used nicknames. In most cases, its members didn't even know one another's real names. And that's, you know, like protocol. Don't call me by my real name. That's when things are getting muddy, you know. Uh, they were simply gordito, primo, cuatro, and viejo. Yo, who's number four? Hey, fucking cuatro. Venga, cabrón. <laughs> cuatro. I get primo, or even gorrito. <laughs> Mira gorrito, he's always eating, eh? The organization worked with Detroit's biggest drug dealers. Um, people like Antonio Pancho Simmons, a fierce, okay, a fearsome one-legged man with a long criminal record. <laughs> but in some ways, it was the couriers driving across the country's highways. Their cars hidden compartments compact or packed with kilos of drugs who played the most crucial role. And no courier had been more prolific than Tata. The one driving the Lincoln pickup on October 21st, 2011. Tata had become a one-man cocaine fountain working on a scale the Detroit DEA's office had never encountered. According to the cartel's handwritten drug ledgers that the government obtained, he delivered 246 kilos in February 2010, 250 kilo, 250 kilos in March, another 250 the next month, 200 kilos the next, so February, March, April, May for following along, and another 200 the next. Before you know it, before you know it, Moore said, he's an urban legend. I don't know why he has that accent and he's from Detroit. but He always drove alone and had managed to avoid detection for nearly a decade. A decade. The DEA agents listened to key cartel figures talk about Tata many times. And they had even caught a glimpse of him once. At a geriatric clinic is where they caught him at. 
fucking <laughs> ten, ten for ten years. Now again, this is going to be a spoiler. Alert, I'm sure for the movie. So, and I'm not worried about it. But again, if you are, um, tune out now because I know that that biopic is not going to go as in depth into this. Um, but to have be so unsuspecting is, um, you know, um, I think when they caught him, he was 90. So I think he started when he was 80. I mean, we'll, we'll get the actual number, but it's pretty impressive. Uh, and also, uh, I'm leaning towards thinking that by the end of this, he might be um, a little, you know, senile or something. The DEA officer. Oh, wait, hold on. Um, he always drove alone and had managed to avoid detection for nearly a decade. The DEA agents listened to key cartel figures talk about that many times, and they had even caught a glimpse of him once. Now, for the first time in months, that thought was coming back to Detroit. The DEA officer, David Powell, was the first to spot the pickup that October day at 3.13 p.m. Okay, what day was this again? October 21st, 2011. Mark that. Not far from Kalamazoo. Okay, so... David Powell was the first to spot him at 3.13. Powell, quote, maintained the eye following the truck from about a half mile behind. As they barreled uh, toward Detroit, Powell called out the mile markers, excuse me, on the radio so that the other DEA agents along the highway, I better not fucking start getting hiccups, uh, the other DEA agents along the highway could join the ever-growing procession as the courier passed their waiting spots. Shoot. Tata wasn't driving fast, but he was swerving. Hey, man, he was swerving erratically. At one point, he cut so close to a semi, I thought he was going to rip. Oh, hold on. At, uh, he was, Tata was driving, wasn't driving fast, but he was swerving erratically. Again, he's 90. At one point, he cut so close to a semi, I thought he was going to rip rip the front of his truck off, Moore said. Had Tata learned of the stink? Was he trying to lose them? At 3.56 p.m., the truck suddenly cut across traffic and sped toward exit 97. Setting the DEA agents scrambling, several DEA cars roared past the exit. They spotted the pickup in a hotel parking lot. Near a steak and shake, dude. <laughs> uh, officers, can I help you? Um, um, let me get a little more grovelly. Officers, can I help you? Yeah, um, Tata, you can. Who's Tata? Well, you. And so if you could just open the back of your truck. I'm just getting a steak and a shake from Steak and Shake. No, I mean, you're not, so, but, uh, what is that shake, by the way? Cookies and cream, banana. Mm, it's just a really specific flavor, but, hey, god damn it, guys, bring, come on, what the fuck are we, <laughs> the agents were nervous, was this guy, um, was this guy so good that he spotted surveillance, Moore wondered? After a few minutes, the truck pulled out. From the hotel and slowly headed back toward the steak and shake. The agents watched as the driver found the drive-thru, pulled in, and come on, dude. The agents watched as the driver found the drive-thru, pulled in, and ordered french fries and an orange freeze milkshake. With his shake in hand, 
Tata headed back to the highway and the pursuit continued. <laughs> okay. That's a pretty solid order, man. I don't know if you guys do this, but I do. I um, And it's regular ass thing, but dipping your French fries into your, into your um, ice cream, whether it's like, well, mostly like a, whether it's a, like a vanilla shake or like just a vanilla ice cream cone. But if you haven't done it, try it. It's really good. I'm not joking. But the fries have to be, you know, pretty sturdy because they're going into, you know, ice cream. But anyway, definitely got my head thinking about that right now. Now, uh, cartel leaders expected the courier at 6.30 p.m. Uh, Mi tata. Uh, okay. Uh, cartel leaders expected the courier at 6.30 p.m. Mi tata was delayed by a train another half hour. One of them said on a wiretapped phone call that day. But he would never arrive. At 5.45 p.m., State Trooper Craig Zicena, who was working with the DEA, threw on his siren. In order to avoid compromising the investigation, the plan was to handle the stop like a routine traffic violation. Zicena, Zicena, not Zicena, Zicena pulled the truck over for tailgating, for tailgating, while Moore and the other agents watched from nearby. Instead of waiting for the trooper to get out of his patrol car, the driver of the pickup opened his door and gingerly climbed down. <laughs> if the DEA was correct, this was Tata, the most formidable courier of them all. The driver was wearing a plaid shirt with khaki pants, white socks, and brown shoes. His hair was unkempt, his gait uncertain. He was unshaven and had thick white mutton chops. He carried his glasses with both hands and cupped his ear at the trooper's instructions. He looked old enough to be Zicina's, uh, Zicina's grandfather. Fucking two grandfathers, dude. What's going on, officer? The man asked. At age 87, I want to know why I'm being stopped. The truck was a mess. The back seat was covered by a, okay, God, by a mound of food, wrappers, cheese puff bags, half-eaten sandwiches, crumpled newspapers, a milk bottle, and an old bag. Well, hey, keep your sticks in there. And an old bag of golf clubs. That's the only thing that I'm, you know, I'm like, okay. Half-eaten sandwiches, hey, man, eat them. You know what I mean? Eat the whole thing. Cheese puff bags, get crunchy. You know what I'm saying? Crumpled newspapers, recycle a milk bottle throw that shit the fuck out because that's gonna smell dude the trooper asked for the driver's license and registration he began he began to ramble about his age and took a very long time to produce any of the requested information zacina wrote in his report about the incident the man seemed confused about what day it was hey man hey uh, you remind me what, what day it is. I know it's fucking... Well, actually, I don't know what day it is. Man. If you can just grab your license and registration, that'd be great. If, uh, and then I'll tell you the day after that. Do you, you you got me, man? Also, your truck smells like fucking sour milk, man. <laughs> I know. I, I like milk. Okay. Not, not enough to drink it, okay? So, license and registration, sir. The trooper patted him down while the driver found his wallet. 
and inside it, his license. His name was Leo Sharp, born in 1924. Boom. He was a World War II veteran. Boom. And a great-grandfather. He had no criminal record. The trooper asked if he was carrying any weapons. Weapons? At age 87? For what? Officer, please. Sharp kept talking. He told the trooper he owned an airline in the 1970s and had lived in Florida, Hawaii, Indiana, and Iowa. He said he was in the business of hybridizing plants. So what I do is I create new plant hybrids to make the world a better place, he told the trooper. (laughs) Shut the... Dude, okay. Sharp said he was on his way to visit an old war buddy, Van Velder. But he couldn't remember Van Velder's first name. Hey, man. I've always called him Van or is uh okay so he couldn't but he couldn't remember Van Velder's first name I've always called him Van or his address or his phone number so where are you going dude Cecina asked Sharp if he was carrying any drugs no sir Sharp replied he said he would prefer that the trooper not search his car so he could kindly be on his way I need to get where I'm going before dark officer he said I don't drive very well after it gets dark Zizina told him he could leave as soon as a colleague's drug dog cleared the truck. Sharp was so nervous that an artery on his neck was visibly throbbing, Zizina noted in his report. The drug dog, Apollo, arrived and expressed great interest in the covered truck bed. <laughs> Sharp said he didn't have the keys. He said his sister and Come on, dude. Uh, He said uh, his sister in Iowa had them, and it had been days since he last opened it. The troopers told him that Apollo's response gave them, Good boy, Apollo. Good boy. Good boy. What what do you smell here? What do you smell? What'd you do to my dog? What'd you do to my dog? I don't know. He's got a sniff of the cocaine. He can't feel his face. Dog just fucking is all like, <laughs> wanting to play fetch. Never play. He's never played fetch, but he wants to play fetch now. The drug dog Apollo arrived and expressed great interest in the covered truck bed. Sharp said he didn't have the keys. He said his sister and Iowa had them, and it had been days since he last opened it. The troopers told him that Apollo's response gave them probable cause to search the truck. Why don't you just kill me and let me just leave the planet, Sharp said. Okay, well, I mean, that's pretty in clear indication. As they pried open the lock cover, Sharp was caught on the trooper's recorder saying quietly, Oh, my God. What the troopers found amid piles of old clothes and food wrappers were five duffel bags. And inside the duffel bags were 104 kilos of cocaine. Leo Sharp, the most prolific drug mule that regional law enforcement had ever tracked, was placed under arrest. The Sinaloa's cartel nickname for him was well chosen. They called him Tata, which means grandfather. Day lily people like to say that they see themselves in their flower in their flowers. Oh, day lily people. Excuse me. Day and then dash lily. Day dash. Okay. So day lily people like to say that they see themselves in their flowers. Orchids are too fragile, too precious. All that care, all that expense. Roses are too cliche. 
But daylilies, in their endless varieties of color, shape, and size, are hardy antidotes to fussy little plants, writes Sidney Edison. A lily connoisseur in her book, A Passion for Daylilies, the Flowers and the People. They're upfront, beautiful, and sexy. Daylilies typically, hey, a book that I'm not going to ever get, by the way. Daylilies typically have a few dozen buds, each of which blooms for just one day. Daylilies, okay. Part of their appeal is how easy they are to hybridize. Simply pluck out the male part, brush the pollen on another uh, flower's female part, and voila, a unique new flower will bloom with traits you have selected. Green ruffles, yellow dots, tiny petals, blue stripes. There are 75,378 different daylilies officially registered with the American uh, Hemeraculous Society. Hemerocalus. Hemerocalus Society. You know what? I'm going to get that word down someday, but not today. Hemerocalus Society. H-E-M-E-R-O-C-A. Who gives a fuck? They're daylilies. Daylily admirers are as intense as boxing fans. Um, what, dude? Arguing passionately about the beauty and staying power of this or that. Uh, this better have something to do with this fucking story. Okay. Daylily admirers are as intense as boxing fans. Arguing passionately about the beauty and staying power of this or that uh, varietal. And Leo Sharp... The mule guy. Okay. Is there Don King? Uh, wow. So he really is. A, okay. A widely admired hybridizer with nearly 180 officially registered daylilies to his name. Okay, dude. For for years, Sharp attended daylily conventions across the country, dressed in either an all-white leisure suit or an all-black one. He traveled with an entourage of Mexican farmhands to help with hundreds of flowers he would give away, making his admirer swoon. Uh, the people who who do li- okay, hold on. Um, the people who do lilies are way cooler than other plant people. Said are they? Said Nikki Schmidt, a gardener in Warden, Illinois, who writes a daily a day lily blog. He was he was just a stud. He just had the air. He had seventy year old swagger. Schmidt <laughs> has more than a dozen of Sharp's day lilies in her own garden. She has won best in show in a regional contest with his flowers two years in a row. His flowers had almost a porcelain characteristic, she said. They all share that very refined form. It's exactly like fashion. You can pick out some hybridizers by looking at the flowers they introduce. Sharp was not. God, I almost choked because of how ridiculous that sounded. Sharp was known for producing relatively small flowers with eye-popping yellows, reds, and pinks. His greatest hit was arguably the Ojo Poco. Uh, dude, I'm going to get a fucking daylily. A two and a half inch apricot colored flower with a red bullseye at the center that he introduced in 1994. Anyone who has over 100 daylilies in their garden will recognize it by sight. Kevin P. Wallach, a former president of the AHS, not sure what the that is, said. Daylily enthusiasts used to make... Okay, so he's obviously painting the fucking picture that this guy for sure was a hybridizer. Okay, so he definitely, this is something that he was doing. All right, Daylily enthusiasts uh, used to make pilgrim, uh, pilgrimages 
Come on, really? Okay, so this guy's a big deal. All right, let me get out of that, like, really stage in my head then. I'm going to give this guy his respect. He's a daylily dude, and people go to him like he's Don King. Ba- my man, Leo Sharp, is the Babe Ruth of fucking daylilies, B. Daylily enthusiasts used to make pilgrimages to Sharp's Flower Farm near Michigan City, Indiana. Or, yeah. A quiet vacation town on the shore of Lake Michigan where he has lived for decades and to his southern farm in Apopka, Florida, which calls itself the indoor foliage capital of the world. Damn. Sharp's neighbors in Michigan City remember buses. Buses, dude. Filled with customers idling outside his front gate waiting to buy his signature flowers. Almost all name. I don't even know. I wonder if in this movie they're going to be like going to how deep that he was into this sharp's neighbors in michigan city remember buses filled with customers idling outside his front gate waiting to buy his signature flowers almost all named after his business brookwood gardens there was brookwood black kitten brookwood sweetie face uh uh creole shrimp burnt shrimp oven shrimp crispy (laughs) that's what this reminds me of uh, Brookwood Black Kitten, Brookwood Sweetie Face, Brookwood Barely Pink, Brookwood Pink Sometimes, Brookwood Pink Pinup, Brookwood Right Now, Brookwood Ambivalent, and Brookwood Wow. I'm looking this shit up for real. I want to get a daylily. The world, the world of daylilies belonged to him. One gushing profile in a daylily newsletter declared in 2009. Little did they know that this accomplished hybridizer and most generous man was in all likelihood already working as one of the cartel's primary couriers by mid 2010 he had already brought 1100 kilos here to detroit said chris graveling the assistant u.s attorney assigned to sharp's case Sharp traveled across the country for daylily speaking engagements and conventions, but federal authorities say they believe he made time to visit Mexico for his other line of work. Bosses in Mexico know of the grandfather, Moore said. According to one theory, it was the internet that turned Leo Sharp from a daylily farmer into a a cocaine courier. For years, he had produced an annual color catalog of all of his new daylilies, a lush production that his admirers held on to as keepsakes. The 1995 edition was a classic, with 24 new Brookwood daylilies, including the Rose Carver, a delicate variety with lavender petals and a green heart. The catalogs were a hit, well, until they weren't. Of all the industries that the internet reshaped, few gained as little notice as the daylily market. That's sad. But if true love, one-night stands, Nike sneakers, and new refrigerators can be found on the internet, why not daylilies? I, I knew Leo I knew Leo uh, right at the I, I knew Leo right at the rise of Daylilies on the internet, Smith, the Daylily blogger said. We had lots of conversations about how he was going to get in, but he never went electronic. He always stayed on paper. His catalog business dried up. The publication got thinner and thinner and sometime in the late 1990s devolved to black and white. Sharp's lawyer, Daryl A. Goldberg, said that it was unclear precisely when Sharp began working with the cartel, but he believed it started at the Daylily farm. He has Mexican fellas working on the farms, 
Goldberg said. They happened to know people who introduced him to other people who asked him if he wanted to get involved in something. His first assignments were, were to ferry cash, he said. And then it morphed into something bigger. <laughs> Law enforcement authorities said the cartel deliberately recruited couriers who played against type. Walter Ogden, a 57-year-old man from Oklahoma, was another trusted driver. Ogden has been on disability since 2010 and has had four heart attacks, according to his lawyer. <laughs> he was a former heavy equipment operator for an excavation company in Oklahoma City and, like Sharp, had no criminal record. Hey, oh man, these are the best guys to go, to go with, you know, guys that are under the radar. Just very easy. It's not, like, very difficult to, like, to pinpoint how you're going to go about your operation. Leo is the perfect courier for the cartel, said Special Agent Jeremy Fitch, one of the DEA agents who worked the case. He has a legitimate ID. He's an older guy. He wouldn't be pegged as a drug runner, and he has no criminal history. It's easy to see how the work might have been tempting. Couriers were generally paid $1,000 per kilo, so Sharp would have made $104,000 on the trip where he was arrested and a total of more than $1 million in 2010. Yo, man, that's... yeah. And I could see how that first drive might have been like, hey, how much are you going to pay me? Sharp's gardening friends still search for clues as to what happened. Gisela Mextroth, the former head of the Great Lakes region of the AHS, points to a Hispanic farmhand who traveled with Sharp to a flower symposium in Cleveland around 2005. In retrospect, you look back and you say, what was he doing there with his manager, she said. What was that all about? No one else traveled like that with a manager. Prosecutors are less interested in what caused Sharp to go into business with the cartel. The defendant clearly chose his role in this conspiracy for two reasons, they wrote. One, he saw nothing wrong with the trafficking of okay. One, he saw nothing wrong with the trafficking of cocaine. And two, okay, greed. <laughs> Just greed. That's all it says. The Detroit DEA office is a nondescript building. Are they gonna fucking uh, it's a nondescript building a block from the federal courthouse. A triple beam scale rests on a dark next to overstuffed files and a particularly great Scarface poster, complete with a cutout for a fake machine gun, looms over their computers. Every house we hit has a Scarface poster, Moore said. Moore has short, spiky, dark hair and a thin goatee. At 43, he is fairly certain. Thanks for giving us a picture of Moore, by the way. At 43, he is fairly certain that the Sinaloa investigation will be the biggest of his career. I'll never see another case like this, he said, sounding a bit wistful. As we drove around Detroit on a recent afternoon, visiting the cartel's old haunts, one of them an excellent taqueria in Mexican town, has served as a meeting point both for DEA agents and drug couriers. Moore started out as a street cop in Kansas City, Missouri. Okay, working domestic, so he worked himself up. Working domestic disputes and traffic violations. Eventually, he made his way uh, to narcotics, where he worked undercover. He grew his hair long, fucking stopped shaving, and visited every crack house in town, usually with a prostitute in tow. <laughs> Ready to fucking do crack, dude. 
Uh, Kansas City crack houses all had the same basic protocol, Moore said. As soon as you entered, you were greeted with a smoldering crack pipe and a demand that you smoke it to prove you were not a cop. Please, dude, I fucking, yeah, yeah, I'll fucking smoke that. Go ahead, bring it over here. Hands behind your back. Yeah, hands behind, all you guys' hands behind your back. The art of the undercover assignment lies in delivering an excuse that doesn't get you shot. My kid is waiting in the car. I have a drug test in the morning. I'm on my way to work. Moore's identity was never revealed. Most fun I ever had, he said. What the fuck? When Moore joined the DEA in Detroit, I have a friend, and I won't release his name, but uh, he was in the DEA, and he wasn't, um, he hated doing, like, marijuana bus. Hated it. But he was, uh, did undercover stuff um, in uh, meth plague labor, uh, neighborhoods out here in Utah. And um, just hearing that he's like most reading most fun I ever had, he uh, expressed that that was like the most fulfilling was being able to um, even just get some mothers like out of these dope houses so that they could start finding help or um, getting these big hits so that uh, more not, you know, not more was being distributed at you know, for that week or whatever, because you, I mean, you guys, you and I both know that it's not like a problem. It just stops. But he, like I said, he didn't really revel in the, in the weed bus or whatever, but yeah, that just reminded me of that. And I decided to share that when Moore joined the DA in Detroit in 2004, he was eager to put his undercover expertise to the test on his first undercover assignment. He tried to buy a few thousand dollars worth of heroin. Okay. In a McDonald's parking lot. Not go well. The dealer stuck a gun to his head and led the police on a high-speed car chase. Moore never, whoops, Moore never worked undercover again. The Sinaloa, what? Okay, so that was quick. They were like, okay, dude, we're we're good. Um, the Sinaloa case began in the summer of 2011 with a routine bust involving two ki- uh, kilos of cocaine. All right. So two kilos, and then it just jumped up to 100 when they busted, busted him the last time. Wow. That bust led to a dealer named Tusa, uh, who Moore tried to turn into an informant. During their first and only conversation, Tusa mentioned the name of a local heavyweight, Ramon Ramos. Moore had never heard the name before. A few days later, he tried to follow up with Tusa, but it was too late. His informant had already disconnected his phone and moved back to Mexico. Yo, man. You're getting these opportunities. Let's fucking stick it, all right? Moore began investigating Ramos, channeling him across Detroit. After six months, Moore got a search warrant for Ramos's house and found more than $350,000 in cash. Okay. It could have ended there, but Ramos said he was the bookkeeper for a trafficking ring that was part of the Sinaloa cartel, and he was willing to cooperate in the hopes that agents would help him get immunity and enter the witness protection program. Okay, yeah, everyone's ready to fucking start squealing, dude. Informants are often low-level functionaries with few contacts beyond their immediate... Um, informants are often low-level functionaries with few contacts beyond their immediate handlers. But Ramos knew everyone in the Detroit cell. As he opened up his ledgers, recorded in codes and symbols, he offered a paper trail that allowed the DEA to diagram a far-flung network that, until now, they didn't even know existed. It's kind of like, 
It's kind of like he got Al Capone's accountant. Chris Graveline, the U.S. attorney, said. To show that he was serious, Ramos told them about a coming meeting. In a few days, he said, a courier driving an RV would pick up nearly $2 million in drug proceeds at 9.30 from a warehouse in Wyandotte, Michigan. Wyandotte, Wyandotte, Michigan. Wyandotte. God, come on. Well, you got it. W-Y-A-N-D-O-T-T. Wyandotte. Wyandotte. I would hate to be from there. You know what? That's that's what I'm going to say with that. Why? Where are you? Hey, man. Uh, so you know where where are you from? Wyandot. Why did you say that name? What? Where are you from? Wyandot, Michigan. Okay. Leave, please. Seriously, you're scaring the kids. Um, okay, so anyway, our view would pick up nearly 2 million in drug proceeds at 9.30 a.m. from a warehouse in Wyandotte, Michigan. Moore was skeptical. They almost never saw such a major transaction. This wasn't a major transaction, Ramos said. It was routine. At the appointed time, from inside a surveillance van parked to block away, Moore locked his binoculars on the warehouse. It was utterly anonymous, a plain one-story building opposite a quiet park in a blue-collar suburb. We would never know about this place, Moore said as he showed me the building. There's nothing suspicious about it. Waiting at the warehouse was Teddy Zack. Jacques. Sh- Zack. Who ran McCaffrey's, a well-known Irish bar in Lincoln Park with a oldie pub design and $2... Okay, this is specific. Um, and $2 Long Island iced teas. According to Moore, uh, Jacques was once a... Uh, um, was once an important person for the cartel, but Ramos had replaced him as the main bookkeeper. All right, Jacques' lawyer did not respond to a request for comment. Good on you, man. Moore watched an RV turn onto the quiet street and nose into the warehouse's garage door. The driver, as we previously mentioned, Walter Ogden, the retiree from Oklahoma, got out, and Jacques helped him load some duffel bags. A routine traffic stop after the RV drove away confirmed it. Ogden had picked up $1.96 million, just as Ramos said he would. Law enforcement officials arrested Ogden. That's a, that's a, that's a tremendous, uh, God damn it, that's a tremendous amount of money to let walk, Moore said, without revealing to the cartel that they now had an inside source. Over the next six months, Moore and Ramos met twice a week in parking lots outside Walmart, Home Depot, or Lowe's. Just, hey, just say, in parking lots, outside of places. The organization generally worked like this. Ramos told him senior cartel leaders in Mexico would send the drugs to a house in Tucson where a contact known as Viejo, the head of Detroit distribution, would hire a courier to drive the drugs to Ramos and other cartel members in Michigan. They would then sell it to Detroit's biggest drug dealers, people like Pancho, the one-legged distributor, Poncho could have been the target of his own major DEA investigation, but this case was so big that Poncho sat somewhere on the third tier of suspects. His lawyer disputed that he was one of the largest drug dealers in Detroit. That statement should have been like, his lawyer disputed that he was never a part of the situation. What the fuck? Why would your lawyer be like, yo man, we're definitely not taking third tier. What? We're winning all the things. Come on, dude. Just fucking take it easy. Ramos proved to be the ideal informant. 
Sure did. While he was taking a tremendous risk and working with DEA, he was perhaps less vulnerable than most. Authorities will not say where he is from, but he is not Mexican. And Graveline said he may have felt somewhat less fearful because his family um, is not down in Sinaloa country. Okay. With more listening in, Ramos would call cartel leaders in Mexico to discuss coming shipments. He agreed to wear video recording devices into his meetings at Untouchables, an auto body shop. I think I seen the auto body shop in a um, in a preview. I don't know. Okay, he agreed to wear video recording devices into his meetings at Untouchables, an auto body shop, and to the various parking lots where he met dealers and parked cars. It was Ramos who first told more about the elderly courier the, cur- uh, the cartel liked to work with. He only knew him as Tata. On September 17th, 2011, Ramos met with Tata at uh, Shock's warehouse. Um, it was Moore's first sighting of Sharp. I was kind of surprised that he seemed like he was in pretty good health, Moore said. When you're 87 years old, <laughs> you think of someone in a wheelchair. He was in good shape. While several men loaded up his truck with three duffel bags filled with cash, Tata cracked jokes about the drive and told the group that his doctor told him he would live to be a hundred. After the car was packed and Sharp was preparing to drive off, he asked Ramos to take Georgia onions. He take to take some Georgia onions. Onions. Moore had spent countless hours decoding the secret language of the cartel. Cocaine was called food. Heroin was called fea. Onions was a new one. Was it opium? Weapons? Onions, Moore said. We thought it was kind of weird at first, but onions were not a code for anything. The grandfather was talking about a bag of vegetables. He was literally talking about onions. Hey, man, take these onions, bro. At Detroit's federal courthouse last month, it was hard to square. Again, this was in 2014, okay? So it was hard to square the prosecutor's description of Sharp's crimes. The amount of wrecked lives is staggering. With the kindly old man with the crepe paper skin slouching at the defense table. Jesus. So hard of hearing that his lawyer had to stage whisper his sotto voice counsel. I'm going to have you stand for a minute. In a previous court appearance, Sharp apologized to a frustrated magistrate judge that he had lost a terrific amount of his hearing. My doctor said I was... My doctor said I was... Too near a cannon during the war, he said. Sharp wore a a baggy black suit, and his hair was a shock of dandelion fluff. He had watery eyes and a nervous habit of chuckling to himself every few minutes. He fidgeted at the defense table, waiting for the judge to enter. He pulled out an overstuffed leather wallet to show photos of his daughter in Hawaii to courtroom officers. They live in a good, good place, he said in a froggy voice. It's paradise. The court officers nodded politely. Okay, man. All right. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Dude. During another break, he leaned back at the defense table and belched twice. <laughs> I'm not even going to fucking burp. Um, this is a nice picture of him in the service. All right. One fundamental question looming over the case is whether Leo Sharp was savvy or senile. His... Okay, see? All right. His lawyer, Daryl Goldberg, argues that merciless criminals took advantage of a sick old man slipping further into into dementia every day. A prison sentence would amount to a death sentence, he said. This is a man who has lived an exemplary life, and then at old age, he started suffering from dementia, Goldberg said. 
The hallmark of dementia is poor judgment and poor decision-making. Goldberg submitted to the court a neuropsychological assessment conducted by Dr. Mary F. Zemansky, an Indiana psychologist that found Sharp's profile to be consistent with dementia, demonstrated by a significant loss of information over short time periods. Fuck, do I got dementia, dude? Goldberg argued that Sharp was coerced into working as a courier. Okay. A claim Sharp first made in an early court appearance. You're dealing here with a man who was forced to do what I did by gunpoint, Sharp told a magistrate judge not long after he was arrested. Was a gun really pulled? Goldberg acknowledges that if it was, it was late in the relationship with the cartel, not at the beginning. But he said that Sharp wanted out of the drug running business and that the cartel wouldn't let him leave. He points to a conversation caught on wiretap a few days before Sharp was arrested about whether the grandfather would make another run. I mean, he doesn't want to really, the old man, Viejo said. He isn't afraid, right? An associate said the grandfather might, in fact, be frightened. Brainwash him, brain, brainwash him some there, Viejo said. So once he gets there, he'll go on and grab the kit. I hope the old man will, he added. Sometimes he gets testy. I mean, yeah, dude, he's over it. Fuck, it's been 10 years. It's really fucking, I'm sure it's super stressful. I'm 33 and that would be stressful. Incredibly stressful. Goldberg says the recordings speak for themselves. A sick old man was being exploited. I'm not saying dementia is his excuse, but it certainly explains a little bit about how he got involved with these folks, he said. I keep messing up Goldberg's fucking accent. I get it. Prosecutors scoff at the notion that Sharp was forced into being a drug mule. The DEA has photos of Sharp and Viejo, one of the senior leaders of the Detroit Ring, vacationing together in Hawaii. The repeat trips, the chumminess, the sheer volume of cocaine, it all points to a man in control, prosecutors argue. Leo is a sharp guy, Graveline said. At no point was it, oh, we'll take advantage of this guy. They'd been working with him for a decade. They knew him. Sharp drove cross-country routes on his own that would have exhausted men half his age. On his last trip, he went from Florida to North Carolina to Arizona to Michigan all in eight days. He was also more trusted than nearly every other courier. Typically, a drug courier parks his car with the keys inside and leaves it in a hotel parking lot. Typically. A different person drives it away. So it's like, you know, like... Clear Lane Freight Systems or fucking Daylight Transportation. You have, I mean, in this to some degree, you have, there's two man driving teams is what I'm getting at on a semi. So you like, so that you can, you know, one guy goes, uh, uh, the mandate I think is only eight hours now. I shouldn't know this. This is terrible. But, um, and then, you know, the next guy just goes for another eight hours. So you can cover 16 hours of time. Um, well, like 14 minus like stopping for gas. Point that I'm making is that, this guy just drove. Okay. Typically, a drug courier parks his car with the keys inside and leaves it in a hotel parking lot. Okay. A different person drives it away. Several hours later, the courier returns to find the car packed with drugs. He never sees anyone's face. Sharp was different. His trips often began in Tucson, where there are several drug houses near one another, law enforcement officials said. One is filled with product for Chicago, one for Boston. One for Detroit. Sharp would begin his cross-country journeys at Tucson's Detroit house. That's almost unheard of. 
That's almost unheard of in the world of couriers. That's a huge risk, Moore said. You can tell there's a long history of trust. As effective and trusted as Sharp was as a courier, there were signs that he was becoming a liability for the cartel. During one leg of his final trip, Moore said, he dropped his truck off at a repair shop with the cocaine still inside it. And he went, uh, when he was making runs for the cartel, a contact had to meet him at the exit ramp and guide him through the streets around Detroit to, to, to the drop spot. No other courier required that service. His hygiene had deteriorated, a common indicator of dementia. Could he be losing his sharpness over the years? Graveline asked. Possibly. Um, not even possibly, man. Sometimes the cartel called him El Viejito. Uh, El Viejito. God, what? Come on, man. The little old man. More often it was Mi Tata, my grandpa. He was particularly close with Viejo, but Viejo teased sharp as well. In a wiretap call, Viejo joked, uh, Viejo joked that Tata was happy because he's getting his teeth put in the next few days. <laughs> These weren't code words. The cartel leaders were discussing their courier's dentures. <laughs> Just days before Sharp's arrest, they poked fun at his forgetfulness. What did the old man tell you, Viejo asked. The other cartel member replied laughing. He wanted to verify what he had told me because he couldn't remember. Just making fun of him, his old man. Man, now I'm starting to have a little fucking empathy for this cat. <clears throat> Despite trips to Indiana and Michigan and months of requests for an interview with Sharp, Goldberg ultimately decided not to let me speak to his client. Damn it! Damn it! Not on the record. Off the record. With lawyers present. Oh, okay, hold on. Let me get back to that. Despite, tri despite trips to Indiana and Michigan... And months of requests for an interview with Sharp, Goldberg ultimately decided not to let me speak to his client. Not on the record, off the record, with lawyers present, or with ground rules. I never figured out whether he was worried Sharp was too senile for an interview or not senile enough. But before Goldberg made that decision, I introduced myself while he and Sharp were sitting on a bench outside the courtroom. This man is very interested in your life, Leo. Goldberg said to his client, speaking slowly and emphatically. Wow, look at this guy. Damn. It's going to be a pretty picture that I post for the for the description. <laughs> Sharp chuckled inappropriately. His heartily, he heartily shook my hand while flashing me a gummy grin. It was his 90th birthday. Okay. Leo Sharp pleaded guilty to drug conspiracy charges on October 8, 2013, but he did not cooperate with the authorities in any meaningful way. When he jumped the bench, he rolled out, just tried to leave. He did not explain his relationship with the... Oh, okay. All right. Hey, he didn't get pinched. He got Well, he got pinched, but he didn't fucking squeal. He did not explain his relationship with the cartel or how he managed to evade detection while driving drugs thousands of miles across the country, but he managed to help investigators anyway. For months, the DEA had been investigating Sharp's handler, Viejo, who sat atop the Detroit trafficking ring. Despite the nickname, Viejo wasn't old. Moore believes he was called Viejo out of respect. Investigators knew he was Hispanic, okay, had a mole on his cheek, and lived in Florida. But they didn't know his real name or his address. When agents, searched Sharp, uh, when agents searched Sharp's truck after pulling him over on I-94, they found, amid the trash, a scrap of paper with a phone number. Miami area code. 
scrawled next to the name Della. They traced the phone number to the Miami home of a man named Pedro uh, Pedro Delgado Sanchez and his wife. The DEA pulled Delgado Sanchez's driver's license photo and showed it to Ramos. That's viejo, Ramos said. Damn. Four months after Sharp's arrest, on February 26, 2012, DEA agents fanned out across the country for takedown day. All at once, they hit 10 locations connected with the cartel. They raided Antonio Pancho Simmons's home in Willis, Michigan, a McMansion with a deluxe kitchen, canopy bed, and flat screen TVs. They raided the Detroit home of Kenneth Jenkins, another major local distributor, and found metal walls 10 feet high surrounding a pack of pit bulls, along with tens of thousands of dollars stashed in the pockets of his pinstripe suits. They raided the home of David Jurado. Another big-time dealer in Woodhaven, Michigan, where they found $700,000 stashed in the air ducts. Shock, the bar manager, was arrested outside another warehouse used by the cartel. Damn, within days they had 19 indictments. All but two have since pleaded guilty. All but two. Jose Roberto Lucero Bustamante, who ran the Detroit cartel branch from Mexico, is a fugitive. Armando Diaz Lucero, his deputy, is believed to be dead. Chapo Guzman, now again, this was um, 2014, so he ended up escaping again, but then, yeah, obviously he's locked up now. Chapo Guzman, the head of the entire Sinaloa uh, cartel, was one of the most wanted fugitives in the world. He was arrested in February in an unrelated investigation, a surprising coup many in law enforcement thought would never happen. Still, experts believe that the Sinaloa cartel is almost certain to continue its uh, operations. In Detroit, officials say their busts have helped raise the street price of a kilo of cocaine to roughly $43,000 from about $30,000. When you spike the the price by one-third, I think you've hit the right vein of where it's coming from, Graveline said. Fucking... Guy. The cartel's two other major local couriers, both of whom carried less cocaine than Sharp, were sentenced to five and seven years in prison. Distributors have received as much as 16 years. As for Ramos, the only thing law enforcement spokesman will say is that he is alive and well and living somewhere under an assumed identity. Yeah, dude. Duh. He's getting the uh, Goodfella treatment, you know, the Ray Liotta character. Um, off the top of my head, that's terrible that I don't know who, what his name is. Uh, da, da, da. Damn it. Now I'm going to look really quick. Da, 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 da. Oh, um, Henry. Oh, Henry Hill. Damn it. Uh, okay. Anyway, yeah, Henry Hill, you know. I mean, he recently died too, but he got, he definitely had to go under witness protection for sure. He took down so many people. As for Ramos, the only thing law enforcement spokesman will say is that he is alive and well and eats a lot of fucking Cocoa Puffs and living somewhere under an assumed identity. There are a lot of people uh, who are not happy with him, <laughs> Graveline told me with a sly smile. Okay. Sharp, Sharp faced a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Okay. Although prosecutors recommended he, that he serve only five, in part because of his age, at the sentencing last month, Sharp's lawyer described him as a World War II veteran deserving of mercy. 
That's not how we honor our heroes, Goldberg said. Then gravelly described Sharp as a remorseless criminal who preyed upon Detroit citizens. How many addicts out here on the street simply because... Okay. How many addicts are out on the street simply because Mr. Sharp brought the cocaine here, he asked. Finally, it was Sharp's turn to speak. He addressed the judge in a soft, croaky voice. I'm I'm really heartbroken. I did what I did, he said. But it's done. Mic drop, Doug. Then he made one final strange plea. If he could stay out of jail, he proposed paying off the $500,000 penalty he owed the government by growing Hawaiian papayas. It's so sweet and delicious, he said, his voice nearly breaking. The judge didn't bite. Leo Sharp was sentenced to three years in federal prison. He managed to win one point when negotiating his plea deal, however. The government allowed him to keep his day lily farm. Nice, man. For all the time that Jeff Moore spent on the Leo Sharp case, he never went to see the Daylily farm. Dick. Sharp's lawyer had never visited it either. What? I was determined to see that, but neither of them knew exactly where it was. I called Nikki Schmidt, the Daylily blogger who visited Sharp's garden about five years ago. She didn't remember the address, but sent me her best recollection of how to find it. Be on the lookout for a black railroad truss. Okay, so that's anywhere, man. She wrote in an email. If I remember right, the road kind of dips and curves to the left, and the truss shows up out of nowhere. Immediately um, immediately following the truss, turn right and head down about a half mile or so. Um, the remains of Brookwood Gardens are just over the hill. I fucking can't stand instructions like that. But a little part of me, does because it becomes like treasure chasey you know like like hey we got a treasure to find and we have really vague instructions man the day after sharp sentencing i drove to michigan city after about an hour of aimlessly driving around town i looked up and saw a train rumbling along an overpass the truss i turned up a winding gravel road and there on the left hung a tattered blue sign that read brookwood gardens I walked through the gate and passed a rusted white trailer. A rough dirt path cut the field in two. Along the edges of the field stood a forest of tall white sprinklers that had all gone dry. Tiny flower labels marking bare plots of dirt poked from the ground. Crown prints, chariot wheel, lemon splash, one read simply, happiness. It was too early for the daylilies, but all around in ragged clumps and uneven lines, in brilliant bursts of yellow, orange, white, and green, wildflowers were blooming. Sam Dolnick, sir, that was great. Wow. Ten years of running just 200 kilos at a time of Coke of coke uh, from the Sinaloa cartel. And then gets busted um, coming out of a steak and shake. That is the mule, Mr. Leo Sharp. I'm going to... Um, <clears throat> link this um again thank you guys so much for listening short story being episode 49 i can't wait to watch the movie this isn't a this isn't a promo for the movie in any way sort of fashion i just watched the trailer for vice um which christian bale is um starring as uh vice president dick cheney i st- highly recommend 
uh, watching that. It looks incredible. Um, but yeah, that's, that's great, man. Short story bingo episode 49 is in the books. Uh, be sure to comment, rate, subscribe, hit the like button. Um, rate and review please give me five stars ladies and gentlemen five stars five stars uh on itunes i really appreciate it uh and big shout out to um, those that have con- continued to support episode 50 is going to be fun uh, i'm going to start uh well i wanted to just go through this one uh, and this will be the case most times but as you guys heard on the easy e episode there was a lot more production involved in it and i'm going to continue to do that Um, but in some cases, you know, sometimes it just doesn't call for it. And this one, I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to, uh, kind of let the, um, let the story breathe a little bit more, but you're going to be hearing a lot more in-depth episodes and, and, uh, yeah, can't wait to get this scene growing a little bit more, but I certainly appreciate you guys. Short story bingo episode 49. Um, the mule man, Leo Sharp. Yeah, there's a true story behind the mule, the Sinaloa cartel's 90-year-old drug mule. And that's it. Have a good Friday. Spare fingers. Yes. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see again I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again